0: This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today two highly accomplished attorneys from the New York and New Jersey offices of the civil defense litigation firm, Marshall Dennehy, Warner, Coleman, and Goggin, Leonard Light and Harold Maroknek lead Marshall Dennehy's Trucking and Transportation Litigation Practice Group. Both men are tremendously experienced in the field. Leonard has been in private practice for 35 years and is among the 2% of attorneys in New Jersey who are certified civil trial attorneys before the New Jersey Supreme Court. He has achieved over 100 verdicts on trucking cases and handles all aspects of litigation from Carmack or cargo loss claims to motor vehicle litigation. Harold Maroknek is located in the firm's Westchester County, New York office. Harold has over 33 years in private practice and is A.V. rated by Martindale-Hubbell, the highest rating for an attorney's professional competence. He has litigated hundreds of trucking and transportation matters, achieving a number of defense verdicts. A former New York State prosecutor, Harold has handled numerous motor vehicle accident-related investigations and crimes. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, John. We're happy to be here. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. Today's topic of discussion is confronting the creative plaintiff in trucking and transportation litigation. And Harold, we're going to start the questioning today with you. Can you identify any emerging trends that you have been seeing in your cases?
1: Uh, indeed, we can, John. I'm glad you asked. It, it it seems more and more plaintiffs' attorneys are creating, attempting to create what we call reptile-type claims. We're seeing an increasing number of attorneys attempt to set up such a narrative, separate and apart from the accident itself. The narrative they try to focus on uh, involves the rules, defendants' rules, their regulations, their policies, and their procedures and, of course, violations of those very same rules.
0: Now, Harold, you mentioned the reptile theory. What exactly is that?
1: Yeah, sure, Ken. Um, in, in a nutshell, uh, John, it was introduced approximately a decade ago. Uh, two guys, David Ball and Don Keenan, came out with their kind of how-to book in 2009 called Reptile, the 2009 Manual of the Planets Revolution." Frankly, the book started a craze. Planners' attorneys were talking about it. It morphed into seminars, CLEs, conferences, articles, meetings, and it was all aimed at spreading the word about how to tap into a juror's reptile brain. The focus was on emotion. They sought to remove logic entirely from the case. The reptile theory itself asks the jury to focus on safety and security issues or rules, and the idea is to encourage jurors to envision themselves in the same position as a plaintiff, which we all know as a general rule is not allowable. The strategy relies on an attempt to attack what's been been known and called the reptilian brain or the fight or flight survival reaction portion of the brain, engaging the most primal part of a juror's mind. Here, what happens is, John, counsel seeks to actually provoke the feeling that if a defendant's actions are allowed to continue, then the community and even the jury itself may be in danger. Again, evoking the idea of emotion uh, over logic. Before the reptile theory, plaintiff's attorneys had to be careful to avoid invoking (coughs) this golden rule when addressing the jury. Their arguments had to rely on the evidence presented. It could not push jurors to reach a verdict based on jurors putting themselves in the shoes of a plaintiff or based on how those jurors wish to be treated. The reptile theory allows or sets the foundation for plaintiff's attorneys to ignore this golden rule while at the same time making a similar impression on jurors. The attorneys frankly start by establishing safety rules. They try and show how a defendant's unreasonable actions violated the rules Uh, to put a plaintiff in danger. And they set the bar at that standard and not at the standard uh, we would hope the court would instruct. Listen, Len and I have spent a good deal of time, uh, in fact, we spend most of our time defending transportation cases, and we deal every day with, frankly, the inherent bias towards truckers and bus drivers and, and commercial transportation folks. We know that plaintiffs in these reptile cases attempt to appeal to the core belief that people want themselves and their families to be safe. They use the fact that most people do not like trucks or large commercial vehicles to begin with. And most have had bad experiences at some point in their lives with trucks or large commercial vehicles on the road. With this inherent bias and the reptile theory on top of that, it certainly makes things interesting. And and that is why we work so hard to see to it that these cases are controlled from the start. One of the things I will tell you parenthetically is that, you know, the ultimate motivator um, ball and Keenan, the authors of the reptile Bible have reported that plaintiff's attorneys who successfully use the tactic have returned over $7 billion in verdicts and settlements. As expected, defense attorneys have responded quickly to develop strategies that defeat reptile tactics. One other thing I will tell you, <clears throat> excuse me, is I read an article uh, just a couple of weeks ago from a May 2020 magazine, uh, a New York law reporter about the author speaking about the justice served by big verdicts in response to accusations that his techniques were unscrupulous and trampled the rules of evidence. So that's kind of a brief idea uh, in answer to your question, John.
0: The idea of this bias against truck drivers is an interesting topic. Uh, Leonard, what can you do when the plaintiff's attorney applies the reptile theory approach and tries to capitalize on the jury's sentiment in the courtroom?
2: Well, John, I think the first thing you have to do is, is, as Harold indicated, recognize that that bias exists out there. Presumably in your jury screening, you'll have screened out any potential jurors who have have been involved personally in any accidents or had a family member Involved in an accident involving a large commercial vehicle or, or any commercial vehicle for that matter. But, but don't don't kid yourself. I mean, everybody who's an adult, everybody who's a motorist and has been on the road at some time in their adult life has seen trucks on the road and, and potentially seen a truck driver do something silly. Uh, but they're also just behind a truck on the road and they, and they get scared and they get um, nervous that they can't see beyond the truck. And what's this driver going to do? And, and, it, and, it, and frankly, it terrifies them. And that's what the reptile theory is playing towards. So in terms of confronting it in the courtroom, John, the first thing you have to do is see it before it bites you, pardon the pun. How do you do that? Well, there's some pretty obvious tells in in the pleadings and in the manner in which plaintiff conducts his discovery. If you have pleadings where the plaintiff is asking you for information, such as uh, give me all information as to your safety rules and regulations, uh, violations of safety rules and regulations, ask questions about unnecessarily endangering the public, These are all clues to you that this plaintiff has either done this before, has read the literature, or or is trying to exploit the reptile theory, as Harold just explained to you. How do you confront it in the courtroom? Well, once you've gotten to the courtroom, you've gotten past the discovery stage of the case. You've tried to resolve it in one way, shape, or form, or maybe tried to motion it out, and were unsuccessful. So what I do is is try to, you know, the, the reptile theory says throw logic out and just appeal to this base core notion of safety. I try, to, I try to bring it back to, to rational thought. So I tell the jurors when, when, when we start the case, you know, you've just taken an oath. And, and that oath is real important. And, and John, I'll, I'll say it to you, I'll say it to everybody, how many times in your life are you actually going to take an oath, right? It's a pretty solemn thing, perhaps becoming a citizen of this country, perhaps when you maybe when you pass the bar exam and get admitted, military service, an oath is a big deal. It's a big thing. And I tell the jurors that right from the get-go. And, and I try to set it up that that plaintiff doesn't want you to follow this oath. That plaintiff doesn't want logic to, to, to prevail on this case. But you, as jurors, you took an oath, and that oath was to be fair, not just to the plaintiff who claims to have been injured, but also to the truck driver and the company that employed the truck driver. So you got to get that in their heads right from the get-go. And then at the end of the case, when you have your chance to speak to the jury after all the evidence is presented, and, and we can talk in some detail about what the presentation is like and what plaintiffs often will try to do during the course of a trial. But I do try to circle back at that time, John. I try to remind the jurors at the end of the case, hey, remember I told you about that oath at the beginning, you know, and now you see why it was so important. You know, you try to bring up an example where a plaintiff tried to appeal to, to your reptilian brain. And in fact, I know lawyers who actually show the book that Harold described to the plaintiffs in their closing because, to to the jurors in their closing, because no juror likes to feel that they were manipulated, that no juror likes to feel that a lawyer especially was trying to put one over on them. And to the extent you can position the case that way and explain to the jurors that when they apply logic, when they apply their oath, you're going to come to a different conclusion, I find that to be very successful.
0: What about the trucking or transportation company itself? Is there anything that they can do internally? And are there any rules or recommendations you provide to your clients, Harold?
1: There there sure are, John. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. So generally speaking, there are themes or ideas defense can utilize to help spoil or dismantle plaintiff's attorney's reptile theory Uh, if your witness and safety director sticks to them. Look, the best defense is to work closely with the witness. Take the time you need to prepare the witness for the deposition, of course. Try to avoid allowing plaintiff to make a record he can use at trial, have the client designate a safety or corporate witness to use on all cases for consistency, work with the client and prepare him or her for what to expect. And of course, explain plaintiff's goals to them. So, so there are a number of themes or ideas that we use when, pre- when preparing our witness uh, for a deposition and, of course, trial. And the first is to avoid giving yes as an answer. Reptile theory questions are actually designed to allow a plaintiff's attorney to testify or provide a narrative. Plaintiffs will try on every question to get the defense witness to respond with a yes in response to all these questions. Plaintiff's attorney wants to get into a rhythm, kind of a cadence, and provoke yes answers to the questions to establish a pattern. Much like the defense cross-examination in the criminal case, it's very effective. Simply put, the defense witness should not or should try to not get caught up in the plaintiff's attorney's cadence or rhythm, and avoid giving yes answers in every occasion. There is no choice, or if there is no choice, but to agree with the question that's been asked, the witness might offer a complete sentence response that at least restates the question. If a plaintiff's attorney insists on a yes or no answer, there are certainly alternatives to providing an answer such as you could say, well, it depends, or I don't think that I can answer that particular question, yes or no. Would you like me to explain why? And here's one that we find in almost every one of these cases where the plaintiff's attorney asks, would you agree there's nothing more important than safety? A good answer to that question is not necessarily. Safety is of course important and there are many important functions we provide. We do not rank them, but obviously would prefer there were never accidents or injuries. So that's kind of a look at the first theme. The second idea or theme is that the safety rule is never simple. Look, plaintiff's attorneys want to ask simple questions to show that a safety rule is simple. The entire reptile theory depends on a simple safety rule and a violation or claimed violation. But almost no rule is simple or absolute for that matter. With few exceptions, each decision that a person makes involves some safety risk, and almost every rule has an exception. So the defense attempts to block the overly simplistic safety rule idea, and in doing so, thwarts the reptile approach. No rule can fully prevent danger. Safety concerns, we stress, must be measured in the context of real-life issues. For example, surgery is dangerous, but sometimes necessary. Our trucks and cars driven on the open road are not made of or wrapped in rubber? Knives are sharp, but we need to cut our food. Take the common question that we talked about before, safety is a top priority, right? Well, it's hard to say that it's not, and a witness directed to answer yes or no will likely say yes, but the witness needs to consider what that question really means especially because the reptile safety question lacks specificity and context. So responses to those types of questions, uh, such as not always, or it depends on the context and circumstances. And I need you to be more specific with that question are valid and appropriate. So for example, question, safety is always a top priority, right? Answer. Well, that's a very broad question. So I guess that I'd have to say it depends. Firefighters risk their own safety all the time. Police officers speeding to get to the scene of the crime put other people's safety at risk. People driving to work at rush hour are creating a safety risk. Heck, chopping vegetables for dinner is a safety risk. Every decision is a calculation. So that's another uh, examination or another topic or issue that we look at uh, with witnesses going into deposition. There are a couple of others that I'd like to address. The next, or the third, is is my personal favorite, which is the defendant's conduct was reasonable. What do we mean by that? The priority of an attorney using the reptile theory cares less about the facts and details of the accident and more about creating his narrative about a safety rule. By asking hypothetical questions, the plaintiff's attorney, remember, seeks to create a simple yes cadence to help create his narrative. In doing so, he or she also gives up some control over the testimony and expects a yes response to every question. If a witness can avoid that trap, the questions create a great opportunity to lay out the message the defense wants to get across in its defense case. This is a hugely valuable uh, opportunity in a deposition and at trial in that a particular message, the defense message, uh, can be broadcast throughout the case and, frankly, will always involve the position that the defendant acted reasonably. Remember, never let your adversary define the parameters of the argument. In negligence cases, a jury is supposed to decide if a defendant acted reasonably. A plaintiff's attorney will attempt to replace the vague reasonableness standard with a clear and simple safety rule. And anytime time that safety rule can be undercut, we try to do that. So know your message and use that message in every answer where it might fit. And John, the last idea um, or rule uh, is probably the simplest of all the rules, and that is do not answer damages question. Look, a plaintiff's attorney will almost certainly ask a question about whether a person who causes damage should pay for that damage. It's hard to say no to that question. Instead, a defense witness should let the lawyer know that the question sounds like one that should be answered by the lawyer or perhaps ultimately the jury. And look, this is a great opportunity for the attorney to voice objection, which under the circumstances seems a reasonable approach. To kind of sum up these four ideas, okay, we have to keep in mind that at every step of the litigation, from the very beginning to the very end, the purpose idea of the reptile theory is to promote fear and danger. Counsel seeks to threaten the safety and well-being of the jury, their families, and frankly, their friends. In response, the defense must provide a coherent theme that gets the jury to focus on the good company, reasonable story, and this in an effort to remove the focus
0: from the reptile. Leonard, do you see any other trends or theories being pursued in litigated cases?
2: Yeah, John, there there are two trends or two theories that I see being advanced more and more that I wanted to touch on today. One is claims based on theories of negligent hiring, retention, training, or supervision of drivers. Now, think about the the typical truck accident. Do You have a truck driver And that truck driver may be an owner-operator, or he may work for a company, or he may be leased to a company. Uh, But usually there are two defendants in the case, one being the driver and the other being the company that employs the driver. What we see plaintiffs doing more and more now are attempting to have alternate theories of liability. Their first theory is that, hey, look, the driver was negligent, and that driver's negligence caused the accident, and therefore I should be compensated. The way the theory goes is that the employer of that driver, under an agency theory or a respondent superior theory, would be responsible for the conduct of the driver and be responsible for, to make the payments if the driver could not make the payments on a damages award. What plaintiffs are now also doing are, are trying to assert is trying to assert a separate cause of action or a separate theory against the employer of the driver, and by that they're saying, like, hey, Mr. Employer, we know that the driver was negligent, or we believe the driver was negligent. But irrespective of that, you also bear independent and direct negligence because of the manner in which you hired, retained, or or supervised the driver in these cases. Now, John, I think these cases are very, very defensible, and in fact, I've been very successful in getting a lot of them knocked out on motions, although some judges are more resistant to dismissing theories than others. The first thing I tell anybody to do is if the facts support it, admit agency. If there's no basis to deny the fact that this driver was in your employee, just acknowledge it and admit it. You're going to lose the motion. You're going to lose the argument anyway, ultimately. And if you admit agency, you can say to the judge that, hey, look, judge, I'm responsible for the driver's accident, no matter, well, as long as the plaintiff is successful in proving negligence against the driver. So for argument's sake, if the driver's 100 percent at fault, I'd be responsible as the employer for, for, for compensating the plaintiff. If the driver were 50% at fault and the plaintiff were 50% at fault, there's only 50% of damages to be apportioned anyway. So there wouldn't never really be a basis for an independent claim or an independent theory for negligence against the against the owner of the company when the when the owner admits that that driver was acting as their employee or their servant at the time of the accident. The other thing I would tell you, John, is that the the case is forgetting the, the legal argument of it. Trucking and transportation are heavily regulated, right? There's a Federal Motor Carrier Safety Act, and there's regulations that have been enacted over over the course of many, many years, and they're very, very well set forth, and and, and they really never change from year to year. But with regard to hiring a driver, the actual technical term is called qualifying a driver. Uh, The owner of a trucking or transportation company qualifies a driver, and there are specific standards and rules that that company must follow. The first thing you have to do is make sure that your driver is properly licensed as a CDL from, from, from the state in which he resides. And that's really 90% of the battle, John, because if the driver is properly licensed, he's already qualified to drive a truck. He's already been found to have the sufficient training. He's passed a test. And, and the, the, the licensing authority has already indicated to the world, essentially, that this driver is qualified to, to drive a truck. The next thing you have to do as a company is get a written application. And, and there are many companies, John, that, that outsource this. There are, are countless Internet companies that, that do this application process for you. The applications are done online, they're reviewed, they're either approved or rejected. A trucking company before qualifying a driver would have to check references. And, and if after doing all that, they feel they want to go forward with this particular applicant, give them a drug test and obtain a, a motor vehicle abstract. John, assuming that, that the, the, the employing company does all those things, they've complied with the Federal Recarrier Safety Act. They were not negligent. So to the extent a plaintiff will argue, well, you could have done more. As Harold says, isn't safety important? Couldn't you have done more than the federal government requires you to do? The answer to that is you could always do more. There's no limit to what you can do, but the question is what are you required to do? What does the standard of care say you have to do? And if you meet all the requirements that I, that I just set forth, you, you, you've done what the standard of care requires. And I would suggest, John, to anybody that has one of these cases that if there's an expert out there that says, I believe, as, as, as a, an employer, as a trucking company, you should have done more than what the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Act requires, I challenge that expert. Find out, you know, take his deposition, find out the basis for his claims, because I think what you're going to find out once you push on that, it's nothing more than an net opinion and an expert trying to make a case for a plaintiff. John, the second sort of hot topic, if you will, that we see a lot going on uh, with is our broker claims. Uh, brokers are not transportation companies, but they're rather companies that facilitate transportation. They're sort of a middleman between a shipper, somebody sending goods in, in commerce to uh, between them and the company that actually transports the goods. So uh, plaintiffs now, uh, if there's a situation where for whatever reason they don't feel they can make a proper car mat complaint, which is a claim essentially for, for lost property or goods damaged in, in transit, where they feel that the trucking company uh, is not financially responsible and can't make a payment they, that they're seeking, uh, they'll try to hook the broker into the case. The very first thing, and almost an important rule, I would I would tell anybody out there defending defending broker claims is get the case into federal court. Federal court, federal court, federal court. If there's a Carmack C A R M A C K count in the complaint, you have a federal question. If there's diversity, you have diversity. Get into federal court. The cases, uh, for the most part, that 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 touch on these issues are all decided out of federal courts. The judges have heard all these arguments before. They've seen these cases before. They have more time to spend with you. Uh, If you can get the case into federal court, get it there. If you get a case against a freight broker, remember one thing, and that's preemption. There's something called the FAAA, which is an acronym for the Federal Aviation and Administration Authorization Act of 1994. You can see why people call it the FAAA. Uh, this is a, a, a Reagan, uh, Reagan-era statute that involved the deregulation of the, uh, of the airline industry, essentially, but it also covers trucking and transportation. The key, John, to the FAAA is what I, what I called earlier preemption. And what the FAAA says is that states can't interfere with interstate commerce. They can't pass their own laws that affect interstate commerce because this is something that we want universal amongst all 50 states. So if you get a claim alleging that a broker committed uh, malpractice, was negligent, they were the agent of the, uh, of the trucking company, remember Federal Court 1 and FAAA Preemption 2. And essentially what you can do, John, if you get one of these cases, is you can file a motion to dismiss on the pleadings. If plaintiff is alleging that the broker was negligent in selecting the, the carrier, that's out, because that's a state law. If they're saying there's some sort of fraud or some sort of Consumer Fraud Act kind of violation, you can knock those cases out on motion. At the end of the day, John, the only case, the only count you would see left is a pure breach of contract case. And I can assure you that in most of these cases, there's nothing in a contract between a shipper and a broker. Which, which in any way says that, says that the broker is responsible for damages caused as a result of, of motor carrier negligence. So again, broker, two things, federal court, FAAA preemption.
0: Gentlemen, thanks very much for your insight on this important topic today, and thank you both for joining us.
2: Thanks, John. Happy to be here.
1: Thank you, John.
0: That was Leonard Light and Harold Maraknek, co-chairs of the Trucking and Transportation Litigation Group at Marshall Dennehy, And more information on this topic may be found at www.marshalldenahay.com. And thank you all for joining us for Best's Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ambest.com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claimsresource.